If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. This morning's scripture comes from the gospel according to St. Luke, the fifth chapter, verses 12 to 14, under the heading, Jesus cleanses a leper. Once, when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest, and as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing, for a testimony to them. Here ends this reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. There was high drama in the checkout line at Target last week. I was standing behind a mama with a couple of kiddos, one of whom had a white knuckle grip on a strategically paced candy bar from the shelf next to the conveyor belt. Please put that back, the mama calmly said. As you might imagine, the toddler did not mirror back his mama's chill. I had to hand it to him. The look of resolve that settled on that kid's tiny little face was kind of terrifying. In his moment of hesitation, his mom encouraged him, make a good decision. His little fingers tightened ever so slightly around that wrapper. Make a good decision, the mama repeated, and the rest of us waiting in line held our collective breath and offered silent prayers. Please make a good decision. Please make a good decision. Please make a good decision. And it occurred to me, as I watched the struggle unfold in front of me, that I, I offer up this prayer pretty regularly, sometimes on behalf of others, but mostly for myself. Please make a good decision. Largely because making a good decision isn't always as simple as putting the candy bar back on the shelf. It seems that all of us are wrestling with something 
trying really hard to make a good decision. It can be difficult to know what makes for a good decision when we're wondering whether or not to take a new job or just keep our head down, to go back to school or lean into the work we already have, to move dad into memory care or keep him in independent living, to file the divorce papers or keep trying to work it out, what school is best for the kids or what boundaries to set with people we love but who are sucking the life out of us. It's complicated by the fact that we make all kinds of decisions all day, every day. Various sources estimate that an adult makes about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. According to researchers at Cornell University, we make over 200 decisions about food alone every day. We suffer from decision fatigue. It's so it's no wonder that the really big decisions can often feel overwhelming or even impossible. We're tired, but we desperately want to make good decisions if simply to avoid making the wrong decision, worried that it will ruin everything. As A.W. Tozer noted, most of us go through life praying a little, planning a little, jockeying for a position, hoping but never quite certain of anything, and always secretly afraid that we will miss the way. Of course, we already know what we're supposed to do. We've all heard the advice before about how to move forward no matter how difficult the decision. Just do the next right thing. A version of this advice has been famously quoted by Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Theodore Roosevelt, and Anne Lamott. It's become a common catchphrase for coaches and athletes and in boardrooms and in motivational speeches. The concept is perhaps most famously found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for the strength to do the right thing. While not all of us have attended an AA meeting, it's safe to say that we all need guidance in questionable situations. We all need the strength to do the right thing. And in many ways, we are all addicted to something. There's nothing like an unmade decision to smoke out our addictions. For many of us, it's clarity and certitude, wanting to be absolutely sure of all the details before moving forward. We become paralyzed by our own unknowing. We want a guaranteed outcome. For some of us, it's approval, wanting to seek everyone else's perspective before understanding our own, accounting for a lack of confidence and a chronic case of hesitation. Maybe you have an aversion to making decisions, so you either delegate them, avoid them, or make them too quickly just to get them settled. Perhaps you're addicted to activity, to hustle, to the fast pace of a well-connected life, and so when a decision needs to be made that could change the course of your future, you don't have the space to consider what might be the next right thing.
This morning's text helps us a bit, I think, for Jesus modeled again and again how to step away from those addictions of certainty, approval, avoidance, and hustle. He showed us that more often than not, the next right thing is not as complicated as we think. After Jesus performed a miracle, he gave a simple next thing to do, the next right thing. We read it in today's text. Once, when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one, go, he said, and show yourself to the priest, and as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them. What does one do after living in isolation for so long as this man with leprosy had? I mean, the man needed to find housing and a job. He needed new clothes and a haircut if he was going to get any kind of job interviews. I mean, the to-do list must have threatened to swallow him whole. How could he possibly prioritize everything that needed to be done? But Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. The next right thing. This was the first step for a man needing to put his life back together. Go to church. Get a blessing. Just a few verses later in the same chapter of Luke, Jesus repeats his advice to do the next right thing. The story goes that while Jesus was teaching, some men tried to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. But as the text says, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the man was healed. But then what? What exactly is one supposed to do upon regaining mobility? Especially when the authorities start arguing over whether or not the healing is even okay. What are you supposed to do when there is suddenly an overwhelming number of things to take care of, catch up on, manage and decide? First things first. Jesus said, stand up. Take your bed and go home. Hug your mom. That was the next right thing. Just a few chapters later in Luke 8, we find the story commonly called the raising of Jairus' daughter. The text says that Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for Jairus had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. By the time Jesus made it there, the daughter had been declared dead, although this does not phase Jesus. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Tradition says that Jesus took her by the hand, called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. To Jairus and his wife, after raising their daughter from the dead, 
When Jesus had their full and complete attention, when chances were good that he could get them to swear their lives away for his sake, Jesus did not give them a lecture about dedicating their lives to him or opine about what grand plans he had for their girl now that she was alive. Instead, he told them to give her something to eat. The next right thing was to give her some lunch. Make the girl a sandwich already. Rather than a life plan, a guaranteed outcome, or a list of goals, the leper, the paralytic, the girl's parents, they were all given simple instructions by Jesus about what to do next, and only next. This, I think, is one of the more important details in these stories, the next right thing. Perhaps Jesus knew something about our addiction to clarity and certainty. Maybe he knew something about not making decisions on an empty stomach. He likely knew something about being with people who are willing to listen to and hold our troubles, people who remind us of our values, of our worth, of who we are when we don't let anxiety, ego, or doubt lead. He definitely knew something about making space for prayer and meditation, where we can name the unnamed, where we can wait and see, where we can bring our unknowing. So often we are so busy trying to figure out the next three steps, we fail to sit and be still which means that that small voice and the peace that surpasses all our understanding never gets a chance to take root in our soul. So since we're here, already sitting in a quiet place, and since one of the most important jobs a preacher has on Sunday mornings is to empower courage and faithfulness, I'd like us to take our cue from Jesus by considering what it means for us to do the next right thing now. Not the next big thing, not the next impressive thing, just the next right thing in front of us, which of course will then lead to the next next right thing and the next, next, next right thing after that. But first, just the next right thing. So I invite you to put both feet on the floor. Rest your hands in your lap. Sit up straight and close your eyes. Sit and know that you are sitting. Feel your feet on the floor. Notice your body pressed against the pew. Pay attention to your thoughts, 
You may be wondering what the heck we're doing, what she's doing. Maybe you're thinking about your to-do list. Notice that. Now let those thoughts go out along with your exhale. Now think about that thing, that worry, that concern, that weight you brought to church with you. Don't try to solve it. Just hold it there in your mind. Notice the feelings that tighten your chest. Breathe in deeply and then release that tension. Do that again. Deep breath in. And then release the tension. As we let that tension go, we make room for the tiniest seed of hope. Trust that we'll get better at this as we practice, that our stillness will water the seed, helping it take root It is a discipline, not a magic trick. We'll stay still here a little longer, and then I'll offer a prayer.
Gracious God, this morning we are trying to discern the next right thing. Very often we think that the next right thing is really the whole plan, every step laid out in front of us with the finish line in view. But you are not a God who offers clear steps, and you never have been. If we had been paying attention to our sacred stories, we would know this about you. You told Abraham and Sarah to leave their homeland, but you didn't tell them exactly where to go. Instead, you showed them the stars. You called Moses to lead your people out of Egypt, but didn't give him a map. Instead, you assured him that he already had everything he needed. You entrusted Mary with a baby, but didn't promise her safety or security. Instead, you whispered a song of revolution for the whole world into her heart. You never promise clarity, but you always give a hopeful vision, and you always promise presence. So we will not be afraid. We will not let trouble consume us. We will be still so that we can look up at the stars. We will be still and remember that we already have everything we need. We will be still and start a revolution first in our own hearts. Help us, Holy One, do the next right thing even if it's just making sure we eat lunch. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Laurie Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.